Hello, welcome back to the Barefoot Books podcast. In this British story, a young man's patience while working as a kitchen boy pays off when the king grants him a noble adventure. After the story, go to barefootbooks.com to find the complete Barefoot Knights collection along with other songs, activities, coloring sheets, and more. Barefoot Book of Nights, written by John Matthews, narrated by Anthony Head. Tom comes to the castle. The castle looked very big and dark when Tom of Warwick first saw it. Like most ten-year-old boys of noble birth, he'd been sent away from home to learn about knighthood and chivalry by becoming first a page and later a squire in the household of a knight. But after the familiar, comfortable surroundings of his family's manor house, the castle seemed cold and unfriendly. As a page, Tom knew that he would be asked to do all kinds of tasks, from cleaning the armour of Sir Brian des Isles, whose castle it was, to mucking out the stables and washing up pots and pans in the kitchen. He would also learn how to fight, first of all with sword and dagger, and later, when he was big enough to carry it, with a lance. And he would be taught about chivalry, the code by which all knights lived. But such things were far from Tom's mind that day. All he could think about were his mother and father and his elder brother, Robert, who was already a squire and might soon become a knight. That was the way of it. At age nine or ten, you became a page. Then at around twelve, you became a squire. If you were lucky, then you got to serve a real knight, looking after his horse and armour and making sure his sword was always sharp. Eventually, if it all went well, and your family could afford it, you became a knight yourself. But that was a long way off, maybe another seven years, an age away to Tom. Now all he could think of was what a big and lonely place the castle looked, and how he would have no friends. Even Peter, the servant who had brought him to the castle, would be leaving right away. Mournfully, Tom followed Peter across the courtyard of the castle, towards the entrance to the keep, the huge central building which was at least five floors high and probably had a dungeon underneath it. Just before they got to the keep, there was a smaller building, built mostly of timber, which leaned in the shade of the castle's huge walls. Peter led the way in and stood, hesitating in the doorway. Tom peered around him and saw a long, low room hung with all kinds of weapons and shields and bits of armour. There was straw on the floor and a cheerful fire burning in the fireplace. Several boys, some of his own age, 
others, maybe 15 or 16, were gathered around listening to a tall, imposing man with a weather-beaten face. Tom noticed at once that he had very large hands, and when he came towards them, he walked with a slight limp. "'You must be Tom of Warwick,' said the man. "'I'm Master William, the armourer. "'It's my job to look after the pages and squires "'and try to knock a bit of sense into your heads.' "'Although his words were fierce, he smiled at the same time, "'and Tom decided he liked him. "'Master William waved his large hands, indicating the whole room. "'This will be your home for the next year or so,' he said. "'You'll sleep here, eat here.' and learn everything I can teach you about chivalry and knighthood. If you listen well and do as you're told, we shall get along just fine. Any questions? Tom shook his head. All right, then, said Master William. There's hot food in the kitchens, and later on you can get some fresh straw for bedding. Hubert here will go with you. A boy who looked no older than Tom came forward. They exchanged looks, and then Hubert grinned. Come on then, he said, and led the way outside again towards the great high keep. As they went, Tom said, Is Master William a kind teacher? Oh yes, answered Hubert, and he knows a million stories. If you're lucky, he'll tell some of them. We always try to persuade him, especially when he wants to tell us about chivalry. Chatting happily, the two boys entered the castle keep and headed for the kitchens. A rich smell of roasting meat drifted towards them, and for the first time that day, Tom felt better. Maybe it wouldn't be so bad here after all. And he loved stories more than anything, especially ones about knights and enchantment and fighting dragons. Maybe Master William knew some of those. One day, it was Tom's turn to work in the kitchen. Usually he loved the big stone flagged room in the castle keep, for it always seemed warm and full of bustling people. But today he had to help prepare the food for Sir Brian's table, and that meant washing and cleaning mountains of greasy pots. Tom hated it. How can I learn to be a knight if I have to wash dishes, he muttered. Master William, who happened to be passing at that moment, heard him. There are a good many reasons, he said. It's important for you to understand that being a knight doesn't just mean having adventures or rescuing people. It means helping in all kinds of different ways as well. But surely knights don't have to work in the kitchen, said Tom, rebelliously. As a matter of fact, answered Master William, one of the best knights in the world started out working as a scullery boy. Tom's eyes opened wide. Really? Really, said Master William. Would you like to hear about him? Tom nodded excitedly and followed the armourer into the stable, where they both sat down on some bales of hay. With a faraway look in his eyes, Master William began. The Knight of the Kitchen A Story from Britain King Arthur had a rule that he would never sit down to a feast until he had seen or heard of some wondrous thing. Nor did he ever go hungry, because in those days there were enough wonders to fill every day of the year. One day then, as the king was waiting to begin a feast, Sir Kay looked out of the window and said, We can all go in and eat, my lord, for I see a tall young man coming who leans on the shoulders of two others. I'm sure this will be a marvel. So King Arthur and his knights, and Queen Guinevere and her ladies, 
went into the great hall and waited for the strange youth to appear. He soon entered, and he was, indeed, as tall and handsome as Sir Kay had said, though he still leaned on the shoulders of two other men, as if he had not the strength to stand unaided. Right up to the royal dais they went, and there the tall stranger straightened his back and saluted the king. "'Who are you, and what is your business here?' asked King Arthur. "'Sire, I would rather not reveal my name until another time,' answered the youth. "'As to my business, it is only to ask of you that I be fed and housed for one year from this day.' "'That is easily granted,' replied the king. "'But surely there is something else that you would wish for.' "'In one year's time, if I may, I will ask a further boon.' said the youth, for now there is nothing more that I wish for. Very well, said King Arthur, and he gave the youth into the care of Sir Kay, the seneschal, whose chief task was to see to the ordering of the food served to the king and his knights. He thought the youth had acted in a manner unbecoming to one who was clearly of noble birth by only asking for food and lodging, and so he decided to make his life as unpleasant as possible. Since all you want is bed and board, said Sir Kay, you can work in the kitchens for a year. And since you won't give your name, I shall give you one myself. He looked the youth up and down, and noticed that he had large white hands. I shall call you Fair Hands, sneered Sir Kay. So Fair Hands went to work in King Arthur's kitchens. For a year, he seldom had anything other than harsh words from Sir Kay. But not once, during all this time, did the youth ever speak up or answer back. Indeed, he became something of a favourite among the rest of the kitchen staff, which only made Sir Kay angrier. But the year soon passed, and it was feast time again. As usual, King Arthur waited for some marvel or adventure to happen. This time it came in the shape of a damsel asking for a knight to help her mistress, Dame Leonesse, who was being held captive against her will, by the fearsome Red Knight of the Red Lands. Before King Arthur had time to call forth one of his knights to undertake this task, Fairhands came forward and begged to be given the adventure. For, he said, you promised to grant me a boon one year ago, and this is my request. Very well, said King Arthur, it shall be as you wish. But the damsel threw up her hands in horror when she saw Fairhands still dressed in his greasy scullery clothes. A kitchen knave, she cried. Never will I accept help from such a one. And so saying, she rushed from the hall. You'd best go after her, said King Arthur, as Fairhands hesitated. The adventure is yours, if you will take it. So the youth hurried from the hall, and outside he met Sir Lancelot, the greatest of King Arthur's knights. You will need armour and weapons if you are to face the Red Knight, he said. Then he called to his squire to fetch some of his own armour, which he gave to Fair Hands. Now you will need a horse, said Sir Lancelot, and called for his second best charger to be saddled. Stammering out his thanks, Fair Hands mounted and rode as swiftly as he could after the damsel. He caught her up at the edge of the forest. Get away from me, cried the lady angrily. I can smell you from here. I am sorry, my lady, answered Fairhands, but King Arthur has given me this adventure, and pursue it I must. I suppose I cannot stop you following me, said the damsel, 
but be sure to keep as far away as possible. If that is your wish, answered Fair Hands, but may I at least know your name? Linnet, said the damsel brusquely, and rode on without speaking again. Soon they reached a clearing in the forest, and there was an old dark hawthorn tree with a black shield hanging upon it. In the shade of the tree, on a black horse, sat a knight clad in black armour. When he saw Fair Hands and the damsel approaching, he drew his sword. None may pass this way unless they fight me, he cried harshly. So Fair Hands drew his own sword, and the two began to fight. Mighty indeed was that battle, but in the end Fair Hands defeated the Black Knight, and sent him to King Arthur to be judged for his crimes, for he had slain many knights who rode that way before. But all the Lady Linnet could say about Fair Hands' victory was, How shameful that a true knight, however bad, should be defeated by a mere scullery boy. So they rode on in silence, and soon came to a clearing where they met a knight clad in blue armour. Once again, Fair Hands was challenged, and once again the youth fought mightily, and ended by defeating his opponent and sending him to King Arthur. But still the Lady Linnet had nothing good to say to her champion, only commenting on the smell of grease that came from him. It was the same when Fair Hands met and defeated a third knight, who dressed all in green, and who was the strongest of the three. But this time the damsel remained silent, and if the truth be known, she looked at Fair Hands almost with respect after this victory. So at length they came to the castle where the damsel's mistress, Dame Leoness, was held prisoner against her will by the Red Knight of the Red Lands. And now the Lady Linnet turned to Fair Hands and said, You have no hope of defeating this knight. If you're sensible, you will turn around and go back to King Arthur's court. Fair Hands shook his head. This is my task, Lady. I shall accomplish it, or die in the attempt. At that moment the Red Knight himself came thundering up. His armour gleamed like freshly spilled blood, and he rode a red horse that was almost as fierce as himself. Who dares to challenge me? he thundered. I come at the bidding of King Arthur, answered Fair Hands. He bids you set Dame Leoness free. Ha! shouted the Red Knight. And who's going to make me? I shall try my best, answered Fair Hands. And who might you be? demanded the Red Knight. Fair Hands took a deep breath. My name is Gareth, and I am the youngest son of King Lot of Orkney, he said. The Lady Linnet stared at him in astonishment. But the Red Knight merely snorted and drew his sword. Say goodbye to your lady, he roared, and the two began to fight. If the Black, Blue and Green Knights had been strong opponents, the Red Knight was even stronger. When they began to fight, it was early morning, and they continued all that day until night fell, and they were forced to stop and rest. Next day they began again, and again they fought until the light was fading. Both were bleeding and exhausted by this time, but in the end, it was Fair Hands who struck the final blow, felling the Red Knight to the ground. Sir, begged the fallen man, spare my life, I beg you. I will, answered Fair Hands, turning to the Lady Linnet, if this lady will ask it of me. Spare him indeed, answered the damsel. Then she looked at Fair Hands. Sir, she said. I must beg your forgiveness for the way I have treated you.
The truth is that I never saw a braver or a more honourable man. A smile spread over Fairhand's face as he helped the battered Red Knight to stand. You must go to King Arthur and beg his forgiveness, he said. Now it happened that Dame Leoness had been watching the great battle between Fair Hands and the Red Knight from a window in the castle, and as she watched, so she began to fall in love with the youth. Then she rode forth with her attendants, and announced that she would personally accompany Fair Hands back to King Arthur's court. For so may I best tell of your great deeds, Sir Knight, she said, and smiled radiantly until the youth blushed and looked away. So it was that Fair Hands, the Lady Linnet, and Dame Leoness set out on the road to Camelot, where King Arthur's court was to be found. Many things they spoke of as they travelled, and Fair Hands explained that he had concealed his true identity so that he might not receive special favour at court. Soon they reached Camelot, and there the king heard about Fair Hands' deeds. There was great rejoicing when it was learned that Fair Hands the kitchen boy was really Sir Gareth of Orkney. Sir Kay had the grace to look ashamed of the treatment he had meted out to the youth. The king, seeing how Dame Leoness looked upon her champion and how she sighed, would have given his consent to their wedding. But Fair Hands had eyes for no one save the Lady Linnet, with whom he had secretly fallen in love as they travelled together. And when she too revealed her true feelings for the knight of the kitchen, they were soon married and lived a long and happy life together. In time, Sir Gareth of Orkney became one of King Arthur's greatest knights, and few remembered that he had once worked as a scullery lad in the royal kitchens. So you see, Master William said, even the best knights sometimes have to do things they don't want to do. But in the end, it all came out right. He stood up. Now then, off you go to the kitchens and don't forget to clean the pots really well. And Tom hurried off, thinking as he went that if he carried out his duties really well, maybe he would get sent on a great adventure. That's all for today's episode. Thanks for listening. Now you can visit barefootbooks.com slash podcast to find special offers, join our email list, and listen to past episodes of the Barefoot Books podcast. See you next week. Bye.